Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 83 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. inspire me to do this i've been talking bass and all this stuff and you know i've been going through my bases and because we're i'm in my basement as you know you know because we all live in our basement at this point if we have one we're in right? caves I'm looking at, you know it's a cave it's not look it's not a well-done basement or anything it's just the part part of the house where my family isn't right <laughs> so i come down here for to play and, and record things right so i went into my storage facility um into which is my attic um, and I went and got these bases that I, dude, you know what I found? And I, I've been, well, I don't know if I had a dream about this, but I was thinking about bass so much when I, after we booked this thing, I went back and I found my original Fender 72 jazz. Oh, my, my first bass, dude, my first bass. It was in, it was in, uh, it was all the way in the back of everything. It was crazy. I dug it out today. I dug that out. I dug and this is crazy bass talk because I know I sound like a nerd right now, but <laughs> I just got inspired from seeing it. I opened it up, and the next bass I opened up was my signature um, Getty Lee bass, Fender. Jazz bass. Uh, hit, hit, the jazz bass, which I, I fucking love. What a, what a neck on that thing, right? I so is that, um, uh, do you have the American, the Mexican, or the Asian one? Do you know? I I think I have the Mexican one. I haven't yeah. seen it. Dude, I just opened it up, and it's the first time, it, when I say years, years and so that wasn't it I, I didn't finish there i um i didn't finish there i kept going so i kept digging and the last one uh i dug out my steve harris signature <laughs> what year was that what, what year was that one that dude that's a great i don't know what year they the fender came out with it but you know what's yeah. great about this um i happened to get it at the same time i was actually on tour with iron maiden oh so, wow you know what i did i was ha steve I'm, I'm happy to say, I'm honored to say Steve's my friend at this point in life. So I, I asked him, I said, look, I don't want to be fanboy as I always am to you because I always am fanboy to Steve and, and get, if I, when I meet Getty. I met Getty twice, I think, once or twice in my life. I still would like to talk more to him. But Steve, I know pretty well. And I asked him at that show, would you mind just signing this bass? And it was fanboy moment. Uh, and he was so gracious. You know, he's such, he's such the great guy. Of course, he did it real quick, and it, it was all good, man. So I have that, and that's – I just pulled it out, and just so you know, as I talk to you right now, Mitch, I'm like the little fanboy staring at these bases. So good. It, you know what I mean? You don't lose that that feeling, right? You still have it. Even 50 – what gives a shit what time, or age we're at? <laughs> it's just that we, we, love, we love this instrument. I mean, I pull these things out. It makes you play. Like when I, I pull, up, pull out the Getty – you're playing a little different, aren't you? When you're playing the Steve, totally. you're going to play a little different. Now, my my original 72 Jazz, it brings my memories back, oh my God, to when I, w I was starting out. And it brings all that back. My grandmother, rest her soul. I was looking for this thing forever. And um, when she was cleaning out her house one day, this was years ago, way before she passed, she found it in a, because we couldn't locate it. It was in a the back, the back, really deep closet she had, way in the back in a, in a case. She goes, Frank, I think I found a guitar of yours. Oh, 
Those are the words because I knew it was. Oh. I had the homing device. And I went, I did, 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 did. it went off and I started, I couldn't believe it. I went right down to the Bronx where she lived. I said, that's it, you know, big hug, all that stuff. And it, it was like my old friend was back. What was shape is really that bass in? Great. I have, I, I'm telling you, dude, it, as I speak to you right now, it's in great shape. It's, um, it, it's not beat up, but it's played. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, of course. You know, it's, you it's, want a player. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's worked in. It's, it's, a, it's a good, you know what I want to, I'm going to, I have it down in my basement now because the, it's inspiring. You know what I mean? It's the next level. I, I'm, I'm ready to just start digging into it. And, and these other bases, I don't know, they just click something and coming together with talking with, with you about the treble, it all made bass world around, you know, come into my life again. It's really weird. That's so good. Normally I start shows with who are you and what do you do, but we are just going into it. So I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> Sorry. Who are you and what do you do? Cause I'm recording already. Cause this has been great. So who are you and what yeah. do you do? My name is Frank Bello, and obviously I like to talk and yap a lot. Um, I play for the band Anthrax. I play bass guitar, and it's uh, been a side gig for me for about <laughs> 30, <laughs> uh, 38 years. No. Years, uh, well, yeah, 30, so yeah. Uh, I was going to say, not uh, really. Been, it's longer than that, right? <laughs> for, for, the band has been around for 40, 40 years. Yeah. I got, you know, so I'm in the band 38 years, to be honest. But it, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary, which is wonderful. Um, it's It's been a great run, and... Um, just, you know, bass wise, bass wise, this is my favorite subject just because it's <laughs> where we, where we live, yeah, you know, and it, totally. it's artistry. It's all that good stuff. And I see, I have so many friends, you know, I was talking not to name a name, my, my friend Rex the other day, uh, Rex Brown from Pantera. We've heard of him. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just catching up. Dude, and we talk bass, we talk craps, we you know gambling, we talk, <laughs> we talk so much. It's like it's a community we all have. Yeah, that I really love and I cherish it. All bass players, all I think we have that little little community thing, and drummers have theirs, guitar players have theirs, and um, we all come together with this this wonderful instrument. But I think the bass community is smaller and tighter because yes. of it's like the, I always say that it's because there's no merch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like drummers are always wearing their t-shirts of their symbols and like bass yeah. players have no merch. <laughs> I think it's yeah. just that we're all tighter because it's, there's not less of us. There's as many of us in bands as there are as bands, but the community yeah. is super tight. Totally agree with that. You know, and we know the, the propaganda is not out there. Cause I mean, we're the bass players, you know, we're in the background, <laughs> right. apparently, 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 but I, I love that underdog kind of thing. You know, yeah. I love being the underdog. I think we, we all unite in that and, uh, and, and, and strive to be better and, and, and harder. I'm going to guess that 72 Fender jazz bass that you have, you didn't pay for it what it's worth these days. <laughs> no, dude, I, I paid, I paid. And I remember because I, uh, I grew up in the Bronx and I worked at my uncle Joe's deli and I, I, the money I made, I think I made $2 an hour, you know, um, and this bass uh, my friend was selling it. I think I got it for either 200 or 250, <laughs> you know, and it was, it was that, and it, let me tell you something, make it $2 an hour, $250 an hour. It's still a lot of money, but I'm saying that back then that was everything that, that cleaned me out. Yeah. That's <laughs> so about it. Was that, it was that important to me. Yeah. That's like, uh, we're talking probably seven to 10 K on that base right now. Right. Yeah. Crazy. The price of instruments too. Like for me, the big thing when I became interested in doing this show, one of the big surprises I had was this, was this whole idea of players, like bases that you take on the road that you can get broken versus what has yeah. become these bases that you just don't take out because of their value. That was like a big shift for me, at least in understanding how much the instrument has changed in this short 
lifespan it's had. Well, that's a, that's a great point. You see, there are specific bases that I won't bring on the tour. Um, for, for the, the only reason there are great studio sounding bases, like right. on record, specifically with anthrax, I have, there's like two, maybe three bases. I specifically use that on my go-to for studio. And that's nothing to sound like a snob. I only use these for this. And no, it's, that's all bullshit. The sound, it's all about the sound and the feel and the way it makes you just, uh, it's almost like it flows. It's a flow in the studio. When you know you have that kind of magic and with one guitar, one instrument, whatever that is, if you have a, a thing that makes you get in that groove, uh, you don't want to, for me, I, didn't, I never wanted to lose. I, I've used the same bass on the last three records for the Anthrax records. Um, and it's the go-to. And I love it. I love it. It's, a, it's an ESP, an, an older ESP uh, signature model that I love. Those bases uh, are so cool, by the way, Frank. They're so cool. Black with the red Thanks. pickups. They're beautiful. Yeah, they, um, and this, this is the, actually, this is my last signature model, just so you know, my last signature model, even before that, thank you for that. But I, and I love the, it's the, kind of like the same neck, but there's a specific um, base that I just got off. It just works so well, and it sounded exactly the way I wanted it to for the, you know, because with anthrax, you kind of have to have the sound of the cuts of cutting through Scott Ian's guitar sound and Charlie Benanti's kick drums. This had not only the feel that I wanted, but it had that extra little frequency that got through always, always. We didn't really have to work on sounds. We had our sound, but it was also the bass and, you know, the intensity you give it the bass. It had that little push that just made it exactly the, the tone you wanted in your ear. It, it still has that. I still have it. And I, I love that bass. And, you know, I'm always willing to experiment. Uh, with other bases and stuff for certain songs. And that's, but I know at least I have that in my head. I know how to foundation to start with. It's just, interviewing bands or bass players has been really interesting for me because there's some players where I've known their music and somewhere I haven't. And you're, you're discovering either how much or how little there is about them online, their stories with, with you, Frank and the band Anthra Anthrax is really personal for me because in 1984, when fistful of metal, the debut came out, I remember going to rock on stock here in Montreal, which I'm sure you remember that store. It's not there anymore. Of course, Going downstairs yeah, I know. I know into the metal section uh, and seeing this album. And I'll, I'll tell you, like it did strike me and spreading the disease did as well. But 1987, when among the living came out, that just, it, it spun my head in multiple directions and, and probably gave me an appreciation beyond just this rabbit hole of hard rock and heavy metal that I was going down. And then, you know, when I, when I sit here and get ready for this conversation, I think 40th anniversary of this band, 11 studio albums, we put aside the millions of albums and Grammy nominations and big four and all that. I, it boggles my mind, the amount of work you've put out because there are bands that are doing these celebrations but they don't have 11 studio albums plus everything else that's been done plus the constant touring and there's been stuff in the middle but overall it's pretty consistent and insane that anthrax has been able to do what they've been doing as long as they've been doing well thank you for the kind words and i have to say right this all starts with anthrax is is the work ethic i think it's kind of where we grew up and the way we grew up with our families and stuff and always having to strive to that next, look, we have to make a name for ourselves on our own. Remember in 1984, as you say, there were no like threat, you know, the thrash movement was just on its way up and just starting up and coming up. So you really had to make your name and, and, and do that by touring. And so you make your records and then you go out and for as long as you can to promote that record, because you weren't going to get radio play. There was, 
even when MTV came into play, we got very little MTV play for, you know, cause we, we were always known as too heavy for that stuff or whatever, for whatever reason that may be. But we, we did our, our thing. We, we made our name on touring. Uh, we put out a record and going on, <laughs> I didn't see my family for the next couple of years. Yeah, so and that, that's just the truth. And, you know, and now thankfully we're, we're able to pick and choose our tours and we'll, uh, hopefully after COVID that is, but, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of work and I, I'm proud of it to tell you And you say 11 records. I still can't believe that, that you, even as you say that, yeah, that's and 40, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. That? Cause it's not even the live stuff and the single stuff and the other stuff. And the, there was yeah. so much other, there was anthrax was one of the bands that just always felt like they were here. Yeah. So weird. And ACDC for a while had that. I would say that, you know, from the late seventies into even, even the early eighties, it felt like they were doing that album tour, album tour. But I'm, again, I'm reflecting back and just, it always felt like anthrax is doing something. It's a crazy work ethic. It is. And I'm proud of it. And I, I love, I, I think we still have that. If not more, it's more now than ever because of uh, the obvious what's going, that's going on. We can't wait to work again. Literally. I mean, get on tour. We're doing periodic shows that, hopefully safe and all that stuff. And these festivals we're doing a few of them we're doing, yeah. but not a lot. Uh, I can't wait to the day where you and I can talk about seeing you at a show, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? And hopefully sooner than later, because look, the world needs music. I need music. You need music. The world needs music. And it's very, it's, it's, it's a very important outlet for people. Uh, and I, I hope that things get under control sooner than later, because without that, man, uh, we're all up shit's Creek. Right? Yeah. We need concerts and shows for sure. I'm curious about that time though, in, in the later eighties and mid to late eighties, because the bands were working hard. There was bands like yours, Metallica, Megadeth, and they were gaining in popularity, but at the same time in, in that, in the harder rock genre, I don't want to compare bands. There was all of the other stuff happening. I don't want to call it hair metal. Cause I would just call it hard rock. Was it, weird and or frustrating that this particular part of, of rock was gaining at such a tremendous clip in comparison, because I'm, I was trying to think of other moments in the history of music where you had sub genres within a general genre have that type of just like, there was a massive gap between what was happening. Like you said, MTV arena tours, the bands were really slugging it out. And yet there was this other genre that's still attached to, you know, heavier music that was just taking over. It was insane. You know what? It's a great point you have. And for, for me, and I think my band, yeah, you could look on the outside and you could look at the radio play and the MTV and the tours. You couldn't, you weren't asked on because this band who had, who had a lot of popularity on MTV was asked to open that tour. That's what happened. What you do with the kind of work ethic we do, you put your head down and you go for it and you do it your own way. And that's the only way, because you put your head down to work and, and put it to the grind, as we still do. And really, as we, uh, that, that's the work ethic. We just keep going because we know another way. It's hard work, and you make sure you, you put your head down and tore your ass off and make as many people see you as possible. Yeah, those shows would be great. If we can get, and we have done arena tours opening for great big bands, uh, and that's wonderful. Uh, but before that, you know, there wasn't always that openness to, to allow an anthrax onto a tour or um, MTV. I mean, for MTV, uh, that was a lot of that, that music. That's fine. That was all that. And they, yeah, millions of records were sold on that, but it wasn't our thing. So for me, if you're asking me personally, I just kept my, I knew, yeah, okay, I wish, hey, look, I wish we had that tour to open that huge arena tour. That'd be great, sold out every night. 
because that, that headline band is amazing. But for me, it's just like keeping your head down and working hard and good things will come because that's the way I grew up. Did you feel the popularity of Among the Living? Because when I think of even the greatest albums of that time, it would be in my top five. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And I'm wondering if you Thanks. felt it too when you're making an album like, and again, how many how many times do I sit down with friends and we say, name an album top to bottom where there's not a bad song on it. And Among the Living to me really would be in that with all music. Do you know what's happening when you're recording in particular an album like that that has become really iconic to fans and people who, who don't even know the band? They just know that that album was a beast. You know, another good question, Mitch, here's, and here's why. Because at that time, you know, this music was on the rise. We just had come out from Spreading the Disease. Joey Belladonna's in the band. We have a great singer, great music. Things are, things are working. We knew while writing those songs and knowing the singer we had and knowing what we can do the next step, I think it all came to play. So as we're writing those songs, we knew it was special. I do think we knew, but you know what? You can never tell the outside world. You don't know the atmosphere of the outside world, how that's going to be taken. You know, it was a movement going on, but you don't know if this record that you have is going to match what they're looking for. Yeah. That's, that is up to chance, but for everybody, to be honest. And, uh, and where the momentum, we have momentum going in for sure. But you don't know actually how it's gonna it's gonna work. And to be honest, all you can do is do your best, put out your best your best music. You go out there and you tore your fucking ass off. But and, it was that's, a, and that's that's the pro that's a program. Yeah, but it was all, like to me again. I'm I'm reflecting, and maybe my timeline is off. And feel free to say no, you're wrong. It didn't happen that way because I'm getting older and I'm forgetting. Yeah, but it felt like it was also a slow burn. Like it it wasn't out of the gates. It just kept building and building. And then year on year, it even built on that. It became one of those albums. It became one of those albums. You know, like Megadeth had with with Holy Wars and Punishments, do that type of like with Rust in Peace. I guess that was like an album. It just it, it wasn't all at once. It just kept building and building. And when I was reflecting on having this conversation with you, I stopped and realized you don't even have that in music anymore. Like just yeah. you don't have a band where they release the album two years and it just keeps building. Like you just forget it. If it doesn't work in the first week, it's it's like dead and buried to the world. No, that's music now, unfortunately. Yeah. People don't actually listen to music the way they used to. And that's, it's a shame. And we sound like old men here, but that's the truth. Um, I, I appreciate music. I love listening to full-on music records and, and full songs. Full, full, I want to go through every track and listen to what this band's going, what they have going on. I think that's important and because I'm thorough and I, I like the, the growth of a band. I want to see where they're at and where, where their lives are at and all that stuff. But for, for us, um, it was... You see, that thing came out, I call it the thing, Among the Living. And, it, it, you know, we were on, and to be honest, Mitch, we were on tour, I mean, right after it. And it, when I say it didn't end, those tours. They didn't end, no, for it, sure. They didn't no end. No way, dude. And so when you say the, it, over time, yes. And you know what that, that time was doing? It was us being on the road promoting that record, along with the, uh, the other records, and really getting in everybody's in everybody's heads that this this record's out and I, so there goes the slow burn right yeah there you go we were on tour for a couple what, two or three years with that record non-stop so eventually when you say slow burn yes that's what happened because of all that amount of touring and we oh yeah anthrax is coming around again maybe with this other band you know this other package that's the slow burn and then i think it sunk into people's heads and then they, they, you know, coming around so many times it's like all right that like what about this song on that record what about this song on that record that's where I think it came into play. 
So th- there was an album that came out in 93, and I'm sure you know about it. It was a soundtrack for this movie called Judgment Night. And mm-hmm. it was um, this mixture where they were mixing bands. It was alternative and soul or, or metal and hip hop. And again, there's, there's history with Anthrax that I want to get into, you know, Public Enemy 1991, Bring the Noise. But there's stuff, I think, before that that was indicative of that. And I was listening to it again today because I actually was like, how is that? I couldn't believe when I looked at it, which I haven't listened to it in quite some time, that you, no, I no. thought for sure you were on that album. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, can't believe you weren't on that album. It's absurd to me. It's, you know, there's, there's so many, you know, when record companies get involved, the, the big record companies and stuff, and at that point, ask you to do different projects, right? And so sometimes you can record stuff and you just come, uh, did we do that? You know, and we like that. And so did we do, we did that, you know, and, and kind of like for soundtracks and stuff. And, and they use your song sometimes. And sometimes you write some stuff like we did a John Carpenter film uh, that was literally writing with John Carpenter, which was an absolute blast. I loved every second of that that time uh for ghost of mars you know the film uh, ghost of mars sure yeah. film. so we we actually wrote w- with john in studio uh it was it was a wonderful experience I'm, i'll never forget it and i love the guy forever i always loved him but just a beautiful experience so those outside things of not that uh, things that aren't the records are just fun stuff and and sometimes you you honestly we've done stuff i, I people bring up to me we did that I'm like really oh man okay you know, I guess after all these years, you just kind of forget some stuff, but it's nice to relive it again, you know? Yeah, and it, it, there's stuff that's, that is, I mean, I'm really curious about the band because it's easy to go the big four. People think about the big four thrash bands. They talk about you. They talk about Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth. But to me, what always made Anthrax perk my ears up or make me closer to the band is that there was a lot of experimentation going on. And again, in 91, you team up with public enemy, you do bring the noise and it was very, you know, people forget it. It seems like it was yesterday and it was, but it was very controversial that there was going to be this hip hop rap mixed with metal music. Now it's become multiple genres over the years and probably influenced things like the judgment night soundtrack and a million other bands that we hear today from kid rock to whomever. Can you talk a bit about where that came from musically? And again, as a bass player, if you're going to do that, I mean, there's got to be something happening in the bass to, to really transcend what's happening with double blast beats from Charlie or, you know, Scott riffing away like crazy. What, what were the conversations around, are we going to do this? What's it going to be like? And, and also thinking a little bit forward, like how are you, is this become, this has become who the band is always adding in the hip hop, the urban, how, how are you seeing it? How are you thinking about it as a band? The band is, and I could say this to this day is anything we want it to be. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's never close your walls or your ears to anything. These are the, this is the music that we were always influenced by. If you listen to PE, Public Enemy, that's some of the heaviest shit out there, period. Period. Straight out. Chuck, Chuck D's voice, straight out one of the heaviest voices ever in my book. And that's I still say it to this day. We just did this, this um, live stream thing, and Chuck came out and did Bring the Noise. Chuck came on the mic. It was, oh, my God, John, yeah. again. It, was, it, it hasn't lost anything. It was, it was relevant. It was powerful. And it was over the top. And so going back to where we came from, Look, we're New York guys, you know, all, all hip hop fans, you know, Scott came up with the idea. So we should do something with this song. Uh, bring the noise. I'm in. I'm in. Of course I'm in. I, I mean, it's heavy. It's, it's still 
Heaviness doesn't have to be metal. It could be anything, right? Heaviness is heavy. Chuck D's voice is heavy. Bring the noise. Before Anthrax did it, was heavy. It's a heavy song. So to put to put our music to it, it just made total sense. And you got to remember, even before that, with the, I mean, we were all Beastie Boys fans. Remember, like uh, I'm the Man was originally supposed to be the Beastie Boys right. doing that. I don't know if you guys know that. Yeah. But they was originally the Beastie Boys were supposed to do that. And they were into it. They were, everything was happening with I'm the Man. They were going to do it. And scheduling, of course, never worked. So Charlie, Scott, and I literally did that stuff. We went in the studio with three mics and did it right then and there. And that's that's the, what you hear in I'm the Man. So it's always been there about pushing the boundaries and not really, look, this is music, man. It's supposed to be experimental and just going for it. We'll keep it in a heavy vein, yes. But it's you can't deny what you want to do, what, what that gut, your gut is telling you to do. But at the I, I never want to do that. But at the time, Frank, it, yeah. It was really different and it could have, oh, yeah. it could have sent people in a different direction. And again, we can look back and go, you know, rap and hip hop were so huge then. It was still emerging. It was still trying to figure out who it was from DJs to rappers to hip hop to soul. There was yeah. a lot of turf war happening between that. And, and look, you, you, we can't deny that when I was younger, if you liked thrash, you couldn't like other things. Like there was that. Yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. hey, how many stories did we hear about, um, you know, bands opening up for Motorhead and they just turned their back to them and just like brutal stories about even within the genre, if you were heavy enough and here you were crossing over into genres that audiences probably didn't, audiences probably didn't go to both shows. So when you say, well, we were into hip hop, even that in and of itself made you somewhat in, in, in a minority in terms of music genres. And that's okay. You know, and the way I look at it, I've always looked at that in my life. If, if I like something different from my heart, that's okay. I'm not going to go with the, you know, the crowd that thinks it's not cool. That's fine. You guys do what you want to do. And there's no disrespect here. I just think everybody should be open to whatever they want to hear or whatever they want to do in life. In fact, it's, it's for me, it's, it's like I grew up on specific things, you know, and I'm not going to, I can't listen to this or I can't listen to that. I'm sure then, and there was that, but for me, I always had my personal taste, you know, whether people knew it or not. It's, if you ask me, yeah, this is what I like. Look, I, I grew up, I'm a diehard cheap trick fan. You know what I mean? That's a great rock and roll band. So kiss, I was way back when. So, I mean, all that stuff, you'd be create, you'd be, it'd be insane to know some of the, I wrote it in my book, the, the, my, my book that's coming out in October, but I wrote it. Look, I'm a, from when I was young, from when I was young, when, when there was trauma and, my mother and father getting divorced and all that stuff. I used to listen to, I put my headphones on when it, when it got, when it got ugly and I needed a break, I would listen to Barbara Streisand just because I guess <laughs> I heard it on the radio and it made me feel good. It made her voice somehow made me okay, but that's way back. And that's, I still carry that to this day, but I don't think anybody should have any kind of limitations because it's, it's music. It's, it's beautiful. Music is beautiful. Any kind of music. I'll give anything a try, dude. I've always have. It, it, either it, 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 it touches you or it doesn't. It, it reaches you or not. If it doesn't, that's fine. But I'm not going to dog it. I just say I'm not into it. I'm not going to dog it. I know a lot of bass players. It's funny, too, when you interview a lot of bass players because the stories can be really different. And yours seems to me to be more of the prototype, which is you were playing guitar and then someone's like, you should probably play the bass. But what I found interesting about your story, Frank, is that it was more like people were acknowledging that you you were playing guitar well, but you were playing the bass stuff on guitar. And it, it was making me laugh as I was reading it in some of the interviews because it's almost like you didn't know, but everyone else is like, 
you're a bass player, Frank. Do you know that? Do you know you're a bass yeah, player? It's, it's funny how you, it's, you just have that, you know? And look, by no means am I a great guitar player or even good. I'm, I can hold it my own. I'm not great at all. But long story short, I just felt that that was the easy way to hear things. And lo and behold, as I was jamming with my, 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 the drummer of Anthrax, Charlie Benanti, he's, he's we're related. So we grew up together. And he was the one, and my friend Mike, that we were jamming together, he said, why don't you play bass? Because you're playing the bass on the guitar. You're playing the bass parts. I naturally, when I hear a record, I go right to the bass. It's just I hear the way it's moving. I hear the melody or whatever it's doing, the, the notes. It just worked. And that was from way back. It just, my ear just singled the bass out always. No matter what song I heard, I heard the bass first. And I, I don't know why that is. But um, I'm glad it I'm glad it worked that way <laughs> because when I switched over when I switched over to bass after the guitar, I was like, oh, okay, here it is, and now I get it. <laughs> and, so it was so obvious. And that '72 jazz bass was that actually the first bass, or did you have other basses? But that was the first real bass that you got. This is my first yeah, exactly, Mitch. This is exactly that's my first real bass, and I ch- I'm looking at it right now as we speak right now, <laughs> and uh, uh, and I have to tell you, and it's almost it's an emotional thing to me because I think of my grandmother who found this for me again after being, you know, when Anthrax went on tour, that was, I lived with her in the house. She, my first bass was left there. And I guess, you know, you get more basses as you, you progress and move on with your life. And I guess this got left behind. But when she pulled it out, it, it made, it brought back so much love and so much of that time of learning and that, that innocence of just starting out, you know, and when I look at it, it's, it's, it's my friend. And I love that. I love that. I'm, I, that I have that. I'm. Like, I want to pass this on to my son. Um, if he ever really starts to play bass, I'm trying to make. Long story <laughs> short, with this, I'm trying to not be the overbearing dad. You have to do this and play. He's, he's, he likes to sing more than play and play bass. But um, I'm trying. I have basses all around the house to inspire him. Yeah, <laughs> that's the trick, right? You do. You create a jam room. You just drop every instrument. You just hope one of them they pick up something. Yeah, exactly. Mitch, that's exactly where I'm at. As we speak right now, the, in fact, you know, my furniture are all basses and guitars around. <laughs> exactly. You got to sit on it. You can't, you want to watch a movie, sit on the bass. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> if the bass is in your way, oh, it's okay. Well, pick it up and, you know, play a little bit and then move it. It's okay. Move it around. See what happens. See what you like. <laughs> so you you mentioned this autobiography. Um, it's coming out in, in October. It's called Fathers, Brothers, and Sons. Um, I can't, I can't wait to read it, but I also couldn't help reflect that it's coming out in the year where it is Anthrax's 40th anniversary. There seems to be a lot of quote unquote introspection. I can talk a little bit about my age and I don't know what happened as I hit this seminal year, but it did feel like I suddenly became more nostalgic than I used to be. I used to be much more like what's new in metal or what's new. in this. (laughs) now I'm like going back to like, I gotta, I gotta listen to state of euphoria again. Are you feeling nostalgic? Why? Why is what has happened this year that it feels like a very introspective year for the band overall too? Oh, it is. First off, the forty-year thing—that's that's pretty big time. I mean, but you know what? It's, it it slipped my mind <laughs> to be honest. And there, um, I guess management brought it up and celebrating the fortieth year. And yeah, and that, it all went well. We did all these great videos from a perspective of other friends and and famous musicians and people, Keanu Reeves, all these people who went to Anthrax for all these years. And, and to tell you the truth, I learned a lot from it. So it was great seeing their, uh, this 40th year thing and the whole perspective. So yeah, I guess it is a reflective time. So as far as the book goes, 
uh, my co-writer, Joe McIver, I've known him for a, a long time and he's a, he's a good friend of mine and I trust him. And we've been talking about doing this, this book for, for years. We're just, I'm always on tour. He's always writing and, you know, it's, it's, it was one of those things. So COVID started, unfortunately, in everybody's life. I'm in this basement where I'm speaking to you from right now, playing guitar, bass, all that stuff. And Joel gives me a call one day. This and he goes, "You think this might be the time?" Because everybody, this is when everything just closed down and shut down. I said, "Joel, I think this might be the time." And it started from there. And we had conversations, and we started writing together. And we, it, it was just, and he and Joel, I have to compliment them on this, and I do this a lot because it's important to me. He's great at igniting a memory. Well, he'll know, he knows so much about my life and which is great because this stuff, after all these years of touring, I look, just stuff just gets by and he'll, he'll remind me of some fun stuff that, and it'll just ignite it. And, the, and it'll just come up from the back of my head and the story will open up and it comes out. And I saw it, I saw the book put together, God, and all these fun, great stories of my life, rock and roll stories. And obviously some painful stories if people know my background. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a great mix from what I've heard from people who've read the book around me that it's not released yet. It comes out October 12th, but the people who've read it around me are saying it's a great mix of great rock and roll stories and the pain and anguish you've, you've gone through in your life to, and you wiped yourself off, you brushed yourself off and, 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 and raised your glass. And that's what it's about. Okay. So I, I, you know, I don't want to, you, we don't ever want to drudge up terrible memories, but but in the title, yeah. and you've alluded to it, that you had a really tough childhood. So one, I'm curious mostly about the, the moment where you were able to be, I'll call it self-sufficient, because at some point you had to make a decision. It would be easy to go down a certain avenue or choose a different path. And I'm wondering, within all of that craziness of your life, do you know where the where that crack in the light was, as Leonard Cohen calls it. Yeah, great line, by the way. Um, this happened. Uh, quick synopsis of it, the whole thing. Uh, I grew up uh, in the Bronx, New York. Mom and dad uh, split. My dad, my dad, not really. I have to say this. My dad abandoned us. He took off. I was ten years old of a family of five. I had two younger brothers and two younger sisters. So I was the oldest. I was ten years old. Uh, my brother Anthony he was six months old. Long story short, he took off. Uh, we lost the house, no money, welfare, the whole thing. Um, I had to move to a, a like a, a pretty seedy area that when I walked to school every day, I was literally getting my ass kicked. Like literally two, two specific guys, one really big dude. And I was a kid. I was, I was a kid, 10, 11 years old. This guy waited for me every day when I walked out and beat me up. And literally, I had to run on the cars and hide on the cars so I can get away from the beating. And that was every day. Long story short, I moved to, because I was getting beaten up so bad, I had to move in, in with my grandmother um, in the Bronx, back to the Bronx, uh, whose house was uh, Char Charlie Benanti, the drummer of Anthrax. We're related. He's my uncle. So I moved into that house, and Charlie was always playing music. He was a great drummer. From four years old, Charlie was a great drummer. So he always had music going. So I was always inspired by that, and I always wanted to play. Long story short, that's where I started the guitar stuff, started guitar playing. And we, we would jam together, and then I switched to bass. And uh, I knew then um, what I wanted to do. And when I saw Kiss as um, sort of, you know, when you're growing up without a dad, you're looking for father figures and people to look up to and get, 
get some goals in life. Gene Simmons is perfect for that. Yeah, <laughs> Dude, absolutely. And Gene wrote the forward of my book. I know which is yeah. the ultimate compliment. So it, when I saw that, Mitch, it made all the sense. And you ask, what was that turning point? Right then and there to answer your question was right then and there. I said, that's what I want to do because that made me feel good. And that emptiness that I had from the abandonment and, and that ugliness that I had inside my stomach, um, it really alleviated that when, when music came around and when I saw Kiss and, and said, this is what I want to do. And that's it. And then the rest is history. Was it peaceful and safe in Charlie's house? Like, was that yes. also, was it more of a sanctuary? Like what was happening as a relationship there? I mean, again, it's a weird thing because the band's been around for so long. Some people know that there's a relation or not, but to hear that he's your uncle, it's like, wow, yeah. so that's a weird thing. Okay. Cousins. Well, I, it's weird because we, we grew up more, Charlie's two years older than me, two and a half, something like that. Um, and we grew up more as brothers, brothers in that house. So as a, like he'd be my older brother and he would show me the ropes and stuff. So even I mean, the, the records he got, I, I listened to, you know what I mean? I remember Charlie's the first one that opened the kiss alive. And I said, Oh my God, what is that? You know? And I had to have it, you know, it was that, it was that kind of opening. And, and it just was the, uh, and the, the growing up and, and jamming all the years we jammed like Charlie, Charlie, he's also a really good guitar player. So we would just jam bass and guitar. Then we'd get on drums and we'd jam like that. I'd jam bass, bass and drums. It was uh, a wonderful oasis. That house, and it, it's fun, funny, Mitch, because it sounds like you read, <laughs> read part of my book. That house, my grandmother's house in the Bronx, New York, was my oasis. It was my, no pun intended, it was my safe home. It was the place that I felt safe in. And, and my grandmother was the most beautiful person in the world, inside and out. And I, I love her every, I miss her every second of my life. I love her. And uh, she was very instrumental of, um, to get Charlie and I to let us do what we wanted to do, which was very important. Um, she was very instrumental into saying it's okay, you know, to be who you are music wise and who you like. And she was okay with that. So I'll never forget that. Yeah. And it's not like you guys were, were, were sounding like the Beatles. I mean, it was a racket. So that's like also it's like absolutely. a big, you know, it's, it's oh, a yeah, it was loud. Yeah. The neighbors would bounce on the, you know, it was, the, it was the Bronx. They were connected houses. Right. So, you know, I, my first amp, a lot of people, Charlie had this whole full setup in his room, dude, a whole full setup of playing Rush song. <laughs> so the neighbors, the rest of their souls, I think they're all past now. The neighbors, they would just bang on the wall. Stop. You know, they were, they were great people, but, we were loud. We and we were loud. So I, I completely understood it. <laughs> but now with that, I've, I've heard you talk also about Paul McCartney and his bass playing. Oof. And it's, it's an interesting thing because f forever you would have to say it to somebody who would then take the time to actually listen and appreciate it. But uh, did you happen to catch the Rick Rubin documentary with Paul? Have you watched that yet? Uh, friend? It's, it's on Hulu. No, I don't have Hulu, but okay. my friend Mike just told me about it two days. He says it's incredible. I saw some excerpts. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of seg there's actually a surprising amount of conversation about the quality of his bass playing where I thought it was finally this really strange legitimization for those who aren't players of just how strong he was on the bass. Was he one of the first, because now I'm curious about when you first heard the instrument, not in the realm of you family friends, but just you knew that you had a closeness to it. Was it, was it the Beatles? What was... You know, but the Beatles were in my life, but it was more about the songs for the Beatles. Okay. Uh, you know, it's before I dove into to bass players with Getty, Getty Lee, Steve Harris, Iron Maiden, because they, they were playing the harder stuff. But the, the songs of the Beatles, of course, were always, you know, right there. But 
later on is the key with Paul McCartney. See, every I think everybody knows him as such a great songwriter, beautiful voice, all these beautiful songs. As a bass player, if you just sink in and just just <sighs> dig into what he does, and I know you have, Mitch, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. And the, the melody, look, and I have to say this, the melody going sometimes against the vocals. The vocals can be doing, doing a complete straight, beautiful melody, straight line, and Paul McCartney is writing it and and almost uh, surrounding that melody with a beautiful, tasty counterpart. I mean, it's just such, it's so inspiring to this day. And that's why I still go back to Beatles records, man, because the stuff he did, it's like, wow, I wonder what he was thinking. That, that makes total sense. You have to watch this documentary. There's parts where Rick Rubin pulls out these these parts that I thought were other instruments, and it's the bass. So he's got hidden tracks on this documentary. They have hidden tracks. No, he's heard? pulling out the, the tracks we all know, but he's playing the isolated instruments. Oh, I gotta see that. And there's just yeah, these components I where I was like, I have no idea it was the bass. I thought it was another instrument. So wow, and because Paul originally was a guitar player, as you know. Yeah. So I, I'm always interested in coming from that point of view from him because he played bass because the Beatles needed a bass player, so he, it just was easier for yeah. him. But um, I find that just to hear that there's other parts that we thought were, I want to know now. I yeah, you got to watch it. it. It's great. And it, wow. and it gives, again, like to me, it, it, it gave a disproportionate amount of time to the instrument because it never gets any time. So I was like, oh, it's cool to just hear this. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think in general, people, specifically musicians, when when you talk about Paul McCartney, yeah, it's the songwriter first, the voice, the voice. But I think people now know how great he was. And if they don't, I hope they dig in a little bit more and just listen to what is going on on the bass, you know, just in any song, in yeah. any Beatles song, you know, well, it's 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 that sound that he's got that's perfect for the songs. Uh, and it's just what he does. He he, he does the outside the box always, but always melodic and always helping the song. And that's that's where I live. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, it sounds a lot like you. In fact, again, just getting ready for a conversation, I came across uh, you playing Cotton and Mosh uh, at the London Bass Guitar Show on YouTube. It was like 2014. And oh, it yeah. was it was amazing to, to watch that because, again, this is stuff I know as a person who loves the instrument and loves the band and the songs and the music. But when you mention people like Getty Lee or Geezer Bustler or Chris Squire or Steve Harris, when I think back on, okay, now, Mitch, remove yourself as a fan from those songs and those albums and, and how it made you who you are, to me, it was very indicative of moments where in rock, you had the instrument moving more towards a lead, meaning it was more present. It wasn't just connecting the guitar with the drums. It was actually doing something different. And in watching you play along to Cot and Amash, it, 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 I was very reflective of, wow, well, well, clearly those were his inspirations because you're doing that within the music as well, which is... You're, I always say that these are sneaky players. They're holding it down, but they're <laughs> so riffing. Sad. And they're also adding in these weird things that you wouldn't get, especially when you have two guitars going at the same time in that type of intensity. And I, I, I'm guessing that you became really interested in this idea of doing more than just holding down the groove. Absolutely. And it's all oh, the sneaky thing is awesome. It's an awesome term because it's almost like you don't expect that. All I've ever wanted to do, and I learned from these master players that I love and I still cherish of what their recordings are and what they still do. Um, I always want 
I have the idea of when I go into a song, when there's a new Anthrax song, and I, after the writing's done, I think about the bass. What is the bass? How can I help the song? I don't want to take over a song. I don't need solos. I'm not a soloist. I'm really not. I did a bass solo and, uh, and got the time because that was a cover song and that needed it. And uh, that was part of the song for that. But for, for I always want to make just the song better with a, maybe a, a flavor, a tasty flavor that will add that extra spice that'll make a song stand out even more, help the melody at the same time. But when there's times just to lay it down, I mean, a flat A, flat E, whatever it is, that's, that's also important. I think, and I think you learn that as you get older. I mean, back in the day, I remember my first record was like, oh, let's do every instrument. Let's do every guy I know in my song. You know, every, every influence, Steve Harris, Getty Lee, Geezer Butler, let's do them all and put them all in here. And I was just, you know, trying to make myself work. But then I think you learn. I think you really learn how to pull back and uh, you say, where is it needed? And I think that comes with time. So, yeah, I mean, so I'll tell you another, again, personal story was night and day comes out, Joe Jackson. And being the age I was, it was, yes, you're really going out with him and all the, all those hit songs that are so unbelievable. And then. I don't even think I knew Got the Time, if I'm being really honest, because that was like in the late 70s and I probably wasn't paying attention then. And in, I think it was 1990, Anthrax covers Joe Jackson, which again, if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to frame moments in time, it wasn't the thing a heavy band did. You didn't cover Joe Jackson and Got the Time. Again, it was so obscure that I didn't even know it. So I just loved the song. And then of course I figure out, oh my God, this is, this is a Joe Jackson song. I'm wondering... You know, one, where that came from. And then two, I'll tell you a funny story about Joe Jackson. <laughs> well, it came from um, Charlie Benanti, the drummer of Anthrax. We always do. Anthrax has always done covers. Always. We, we have fun with them. We jam them. If you see us Anthrax soundcheck, there's probably not an Anthrax song being played. It'll be a cover of something. Charlie and I grew up playing covers. Let's face it. We jammed Rush, you know, Kiss, Cheap Trick, all the good stuff you can think of. Any anything down the book. Um, that was a natural thing. So he, I'd listen. That's whenever he came up with an idea to cover, we all throw names in. Who should we do? What, what kind of covers should we do? He brought up this song, got the time. I knew the song. The one thing, and Mitch, you'll know this. As soon as I, um, as soon as I heard the song, I said, uh Oh, um, there's a bass solo in that, which, you know, look, Graham maybe is a great bass player. He's a great, not a good bass player. Great bass player, right? Um, pick player. I'm not a pick player. I, I could play with a pick, but I prefer my fingers. Fine. So when I, all I wanted to do was do it justice in my own way. I'm not going to do exactly what he did because that was masterful. I just wanted to do my own thing for Anthrax and not make it too complicated. And so I just took it apart and did my own thing with it. But um, I can't tell you, after that song, um, after that song came out, the hype that that song got from, I mean, it was a big song, I think, for, for Joe Jackson anyway. But when, the ultimate compliment was, when we, I think we were in England, and Joe Jackson contacted our manager that he wanted to come down and sing. He liked the version so much, he wanted to come sing it at our show. It didn't work out that night with logistics and all that stuff, but it, it was just such a great thing that they, those guys dig the song. And so, and for the bass, the, the bass in that song, um, for me, it's just, not too much, not too little. It's not, yeah. I don't go overboard. I don't go too little. It's just a quick, tasty, fun thing. And um, just put it together. Uh, and and still one of the bigger songs that we play live. 
it's crazy. I, I don't get it, but it, it's it's a great song. I've always been a Joe Jackson fan. I still will always be. Yeah. Like, Graham Maybe, man, that boy can play, man, so, in a real way. Yeah. So so the story, I don't know if it's, it's the component that's funny is just the conversation they had. But um, going back 2019, Joe Jackson's on tour and I thought I'm going to go see him. And I thought my, my little sneaky way of getting would be maybe I'll interview the bass player for my podcast, not realizing that Graham maybe is still his bass player after 50 mm -hmm. years, which, so I reach out and he was super gracious, went down to the hotel, spent a lot more time with him than, than probably I should with someone like Graham, maybe because I would just, I was so blown away. But the story he tells is that Joe Jackson got that record deal. I don't know if you know the story, but like right out of high school. And that, yeah. he was walking the streets of London with Graham and he had just signed to A&M and he turned to Graham and he said, just so you know, like all of the songs are going to be bass driven and it's going to be all about you. And I was like, I, wow. I know that. Yeah. Like think about that. it now and think about all these songs. It makes Dude. total sense. They're all bass riffs that drive the song. Every single big one. Bass riffs. Not only does he like you talk about taste and, 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 and colorful stuff and just flavor, everything he, everything he plays is flavor, Graham. But Listen to his bass sound, right? Isn't that the perfect sound for Joe Jackson? Doesn't oh. it fit? Doesn't that just fit? I mean, I, mean, I, I sound like the over, over, uh, I, I like all this stuff. I love bass sounds too. I'm, I'm very into that, how they make a band sound. So that is one of the quintessential bass sounds of, of like, it really, that was on radio. That was yeah. on a lot of radio. And that, that was like a standard bass. That was like, that, that sounds great, man. And it was a pick. It sounded so good, man. It was like, it, it was, you know, right. It, it all the songs. Yeah, yeah. All the songs are based. And again, you think about the riffs and this, and you don't realize that when you listen to them again with that mindset of Joe Jackson saying, whatever we're doing, it's going to be driven by the bass. You're like, yeah. it totally is true. And what a yeah. strange, what a strange thing to say in that genre. Because again, if you're talking late seventies, it's super, you know, we're heading into a lot of synth stuff. And again, just stuff sure. Joe Jackson was using. And you don't realize that it was all Graham maybe. So spending that time with them. And again, it's it's kind of similar to when I have conversations with people like you, where it's just decades. Like I, I sat down with Ian Hill from Judas Priest, who he's, he's, the, yeah, well, he's done nothing but Judas Priest, 50 plus years. It's crazy. I love him. He's a great, he's, I mean, you've talked with him. He's just a beautiful man inside and out. You know, he's so underrated too. His pocket is incredible. Oh. His pocket, the, the pocket he holds. For, I mean, I've stayed on the side of the stage. We've toured with him a lot. And staying on the side of the stage with, with, and listening to what he does, he's so underrated. He, that pocket is incredible what he does. You it know really what it is, is, too? He's incredibly smooth in music that's incredibly not. Yeah, man. <laughs> he's, he, he's a foundation. Not, I mean, not, it's, it's the obvious word, the foundation. But he just, when you, especially on the side of the stage, you hear it. Because the guitars are doing their thing, right? Yeah. But man, he's locked in with that kick. He is locked. I mean, it's right there live. That was consistent every night, man. So I'm, I'm curious, Frank, how, how do you think the world will react to this autobiography? Because we live in a world where it seems like everyone in the genre is writing something now and telling a story in yeah. a certain way. How did you approach it? How do you approach it in a way where you can make it your own? I mean, it's, it's, there's, some, there's a lot of agony in the stories we talked about, but... Yeah. What did you want to do with it that you thought would make it different for, for people to hear? And by the way, we should talk about the John Entwistle biography. If you hadn't read that, because that's amazing also. <laughs> uh, you, you've read that? Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't read it yet. Oh, you got to read it. Oh, my God, yeah. That's, I have to. I've, a lot of people tell me that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But to go back to this, for me, all, all I ever wanted to do, and all I have, have been since I grew up, is be honest. 
And it's this is an honest story of, uh, I guess we talked about this before, Mitch, we're reflective at this time. You know, it's a reflective time in my life and what we've done, uh, what I've done. Yeah, it's been a, a rough road. Look, the, the book talks about my brother's murder. And uh, my, for those of you that don't know, my brother, Anthony, was murdered at 23 years old um, uh, via, via gunshot uh, in the Bronx, New York, and where I just lost my, I lost my shit. I really, I was out for vengeance. I wasn't Frank from Anthrax or anybody anymore. I was the guy that was, I was a hunter. Uh, long story short, you know, if you read the book, you'll understand I came out of that, thank, thankfully, away from that, and um, it didn't happen, I'm, well, so I'm still here, thank, thankfully. But uh, there's a lot of pain that went on in, in the life, but I guess what I wanted to do with this book, because I'm reflective at this point, is to show people that, yeah, everybody's got their story, and we all, a lot of people have horrible stories, and this is my story, and what I want to show people is that whatever you go through in life, I mean, take the, whatever kind of beatings life gives you, the whole thing is you got to get up, brush yourself off and have another day. And that's, that's the most important thing I can leave with this book because there isn't a lot of people talking about that. There's a lot of anger, a lot of, a lot of frustration going on in the world right now, specifically this time. And yeah, we all want to sell our books and stuff, but this is just an an honest story. I've, I've never not been just honest. I'm an honest dude. I don't care about bullshitting. It doesn't make sense to me. Yes, there's a lot of great rock and roll stories that from Anthrax. There's a great, some great Metallica stories who are touring, and and you'll read them and you have fun with them. But there's also this other side of life that's it's like never say die. And yeah, you get kicked down, man. I'm gonna brush myself off and I'm gonna step up to the next day. And I guess that's what I want to leave with people because I'm still doing that, regardless of whatever path you've had, whatever knocks you down in life. Brush yourself off. You can do it. If I can do it. You can do it, and that's yeah. that's my message. And, and, really and do we ever need messages like that in the in a world where we feel so much anger about the littlest things now? So, it, dude, it, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, especially now. Look, this is all. I'm hoping people read the book just so we could have better days out there. You know, yeah. it, I want people just to feel good about life in general. You know, I mean, we this will go. We will move on from this COVID thing. We will. Human nature will move on from this. That's what people have to know. So I, I'm. You know, I guess at this age, I'm just I'm more positive about life and enjoying each day. And I want people to feel that, man. It's like, come on, man. We're all in this together. We'll get through this together. We've gotten through wars and stuff like this before, and we'll do it again. And that's that's really important. And listen, this is coming from a guy who had to deal with the fact that his band was called Anthrax at a time when it was not a good name to have. <laughs> yeah. Again, another thing we talk about that in the book too about having Jeez. the name Anthrax during you know that whole time with uh, the the white stuff going around and, and envelopes, and crazy. and it's crazy stories. You know these were all in, all in the book, and it, it was and and it's fun to look back, at, and and say, all right, this has been a good ride, but um and and carry on to the next day, and that's what I think is most important. That there is another, there's a better day ahead, and you got to look that way because what else do you have? Why be negative on it? What's the point? I looked at the negative side. It, it didn't didn't feel good. I don't want to not. I don't. I want to feel good, man. Yeah. So uh, I think everybody wants to feel good at the end of the day. So why not? So there's the uh, there's the autobiography. There's uh, Anthrax released uh, XL or Forty Whiskey. Uh, that's yeah, pretty man. cool. For, that came out for the 40th anniversary. Uh, is there new music on the way from the band? I mean, 20s. I guess it was 2016 was the last album. Yeah, we are and because the obvious. We toured for um, three years, and then obviously <laughs> the COVID thing. And uh, yeah, we are writing. Um, 
right now. We are writing right now. We don't know when, how, and what kind of atmosphere, <laughs> if anybody's allowed to tour and all that stuff next year, we're hoping, we're looking towards next year. We want that to happen, put it that way. But I'm also writing, just so you know, I'm also writing solo stuff. Good. Because um, a lot of people like the Altitudes and Attitudes thing. Yeah. I did with uh, uh, Dave Ellison. Sure. So I'm writing some solo stuff. This is, if you like the Altitudes and Attitudes stuff, uh, I think you'll like this because it's like the second part of that. It's, it's, uh, a lot of people are digging it that I've um, that was an, so yeah that was an incredible project for sure and uh, thanks man thank yeah. you very much yeah so I'm and uh, again you got to keep busy um, I've never done a book this is my first book uh, I'm interested to see uh, look it's it's scary you're, you're letting go this is completely raw this is I've let it all when I say everything raw like when you only have to read and proofread this thing a thousand times to make sure it's okay I still can't believe I let some of this stuff go uh, I'm, <laughs> man maybe I, I went too deep. But why not? Yeah. Why not just let people know who you are? And, I, and I'm raw, man. And that's it. It's just as honest as I can be. So that, there you go. And this was a great and honest conversation. Frank, I cannot thank you enough, not only the time you spent with me, but just for, for being there with me with the music all those years. To this day, I go out for a daily walk and I have a mix. And at least twice on that mix is, is, is an anthrax song comes into rotation or shuffle. And it just gets me going again and just... One, it brings me back a lot of fresh memories, but at the same time, it really pushes me forward. The music that you created always makes me want to explore other music, and I think that's a testament to a very cool and innovative band. So thank you for your music. Uh, thank you for that. And you know, and that's what makes you, like what you just said right now, inspires me to do more. And thank you for that. So because I think we should all be inspired by each other. And I, I, I think it's important we get back to that. Everybody should just move on with their lives and just get inspired and, 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 move on to the next day. And, and, and thanks for doing this podcast, dude. First off, you know, for no trouble. That's awesome. So thank <laughs> you. It's not a kiss ass thing. It's just cool. No, I appreciate so it. For that. No, I mean, you know, we, we, you and I've been emailing each other for a while to make this happen. And I think, Sorry about this. no, it's not you. It's the PR people were like, well, what moment at what point? And I was just like, it's gotta happen. I have to, I, and we need him on the show. So I'm so happy that it worked out. I'm glad it worked out. We'll do it again, man. Absolutely. Uh.